Okay, this is lesson two on uh, the tabernacle plan, and we're reading from Exodus 25, verses 8 through 10. And I want you to notice, uh, as we covered in the ending of lesson one, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle. Verse 10, and thou shalt make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And so what we're looking at right now is we're looking at an artist's rendition, or an actual model, of uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. But I think what is interesting is, as I closed out lesson one in mentioning, is the fact that uh, as you look at this diagram of the tabernacle in the wilderness, of course you're looking at the outer court, it's facing east, and then you are seeing the altar of sacrifice, that article there in the center where the fire is burning, and then the laver, which was made out of the looking glasses of women, it was made out of brass, the brass looking glasses represents baptismal, uh, you get a vision of what you are, and then of course uh, we notice you could only walk through the one gate that faced east, and Jesus later says that he is the door, and then we see that the outside of this tabernacle was nothing comely about it or anything to be uh, adored, that it was made out of badger skins, and of course it, this whole thing is a picture of Christ, but what I want to call our attention to is as soon as he tells them to build him a tabernacle, the first item, or we call it article of furnishings, before even they build the outer courtyard fence, before even they build the uh, tent itself, is he has them build an ark, which we call the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Testimony has many names in Scripture. It's referred to many, many times. But I want you to notice where you see this pillar of cloud uh, on the back of this tent-like structure. Of course, that's over the Holy of Holies. Now, those of you that have never studied this plan before, the Holies of Holies is a cube, and it measures 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. So it actually comes to 1,000 square cubits. The holy place, and the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant will sit. Then, of course, there is the veil that keeps us from getting to the Ark of the Covenant, and there on this side of the veil where the altar of incense and the table of shewbread and the seven-lamped menorah or the seven-lamped uh, candlestick sets in the holy place. And the holy place measures 20 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits, and that comes to 2,000 cubits. And so uh, you're going to find so many coincidences, if they're coincidences, in this teaching. But let's just say that God in his foreknowledge, because this is a typology teaching, and this is a pattern of things in heaven, that we recognize the fact that, number one, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. And where this cloud is situated and coming down on the back of this tent is actually it comes down through the tent and it rests between the cherubims on the Ark of the Covenant there on the mercy seat. This is where God will speak to them. This is where he will talk to them. And this is where his presence and his glory, uh, the Jews call it the Shekinah, uh, the manifest presence of God, the white light, the, the brilliance, the essence, the same that would sit on the throne in heaven. Shekinah is not found in our scripture, but it is uh, historically written by, by the sages. It's, it's what the Jews have always referred to as the very glory or all the fullness of God's manifest uh, uh, aura. And so this comes down on the ark. And so we see where the ark, which represents Christ or the presence of God in flesh, 
it is in a room that measures a thousand cubits. This represents very possibly the thousand year reign, millennial reign of Jesus Christ in the earth. And then of course, we see in the holy place that measures 2,000 cubits, it represents uh, the Holy Spirit or Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ in the earth today from the time that Christ has left until now. So it represents the church age, the 2,000 years. And then the outer courtyard represents the 2,500 years before the Bible was ever written. We did not have a Bible the first 2,500 years after, excuse me, Adam was created. And so uh, as we look at this, I'm wanting to draw our attention to that God gives us the instruction on how to build this from the inside out. And that is of utmost importance because when we look at this diagram, we have no idea what is inside of the tent. And I think that we'll see a very good reason. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be a propitiation, which that is the word mercy seat for our sins. So he starts this tabernacle plan, and the first thing he gives them instruction on how to build is the Ark of the Covenant. And actually, uh, I can spend probably 10 hours on this, and I don't know how many I will spend because there's so many beautiful hidden typologies in it. But actually, the Ark of the Covenant is made up of several pieces. It's made up of the cherubims, it's made up of the mercy seat, and then it's actually three boxes. One box within another within another. And so we see here where, speaking of why would he give them the Ark of the Covenant to be the first thing that he gives them, God is showing us where he lives. That everything starts with God. And he is showing us where he lives and he is giving us this blueprint as he walks out to meet man. And then by faith we are able to follow from the one door back to where God is. And that is uh, the purpose of this. So as we look at this Ark of the Covenant, that is the first piece or article of furnishing that we find in the tabernacle given to us by God, we see first off there were three arcs in Scripture. And uh, staying on the Ark of the Covenant, it's interesting because the first ark was an ark of salvation. And of course I'm speaking of the Ark of Noah. And then we have the second ark, which was the ark of deliverance. Our deliverer came. It was whom? It was the, the ark of bulrushes that Moses was placed in. And all of these arks were salvation and represented our salvation and protection. And then, of course, this third ark that God gives us a plan for and a typology is going to be the ark of the covenant. And it, too, is going to be a place of protection. Remember, they take it into battle with them. It's also going to be a place of salvation because this is the place that makes atonement for our sin. Now, uh, you're going to have to understand that as I speak uh, tonight on this Ark of the Covenant, that every time I say Ark of the Covenant, I'm saying Jesus Christ. They're synonymous in my mind, okay, in my mind. So whenever I say Ark of the Covenant, I just want you to go ahead and think Jesus Christ. Because what we need to understand is, as we have aforementioned, that God did not give us 42 chapters in a row when he created all the heaven and the earth in one chapter, and then spend 42 chapters to give us the plan of some tent, historically, about something we could camp with God in. It is a blueprint of the universe. It's a blueprint of the plan of God. 
And so what we took most of lesson one was expressing to us the nine months it took from the time of inception and conception into the mind of Moses till the time of completion to build a house of skin that God would dwell amongst us in, which is, once again, Jesus Christ. And then what we see is, is this everything in your Bible, once we can rightly divide the word and God reveals it to us, is a type of Jesus. So, uh, the Ark of the Covenant represents the throne of God on earth. It represents the presence of God in the earth. It represents the glory of God. It also represents the fullness of God. Now remember that God is a spirit. And anytime one of the rules that I have tried to keep uh, Christians in and myself in is anytime that we are speaking of biblical terms or speaking of descriptive terms and terminologies for God, is that we must use biblical language. Anytime we get out of biblical concepts, then we, uh, uh, we pollute the meaning of uh, the description of God. So I said that to say this. So God is a spirit. God the Father is invisible. When we receive the Spirit of God, it is the Spirit of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit. It's just one spirit. They're all synonymous terms for the Spirit of God. But when we receive the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God, all the same thing. We receive it in measure. The fullness means the Shekinah. It means the central computer, the, the central housing of God. And therefore, uh, even though that Shekinah, that glory of God, uh, was manifest in the ark, over the ark, there in the tabernacle, you need to realize that God was still at the very edge of the universe. He was still in the depth of the sea. He fill, filled all the heavens because you cannot go where God is not. The universe is not in God. Yeah, God is not in the universe. The universe is in God. And you can't go anywhere that he's not. That's how big God the Father is. He is not a body. He's not an old man with white hair and a beard. You will never find this in the Old Testament. You will never find this in the New Testament. The only place you will find this is the Ancient of Days whenever uh, Daniel is seeing a prophetic picture of the end of time. And then we see Yeshua, Jesus, uh, who takes on many forms that will fulfill as he comes forth out of the throne as a lion, as a lamb, as an ancient of days. But Yeshua, Jesus, is the manifest image of the invisible God. So, when we look at the fullness of God, uh, this is when we look at the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, when you look at Jesus, who was the mercy seat, the Ark. Exodus chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above on the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I will give thee, and there I will meet with you, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. So as we look at this artist's rendition of the ark of the covenant, and you can read uh, the descriptive terms on how it was to be built in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 16, uh, you will see that it was placed as the only article and the only item of furnishing in the Holy of Holies. And once again, it was the place of salvation, just as the first two arcs, and the place of protection, because this is where the blood had to be sprinkled to make atonement for the sin of man on the Day of Atonement. This is what we see Jesus do when he ascends to the throne room of God, and there he will not allow Mary to touch him until that blood has been shed on the mercy seat there in the heavenlies. And so in Exodus 25, he says, According to all the pattern that I show thee, uh, and you will make an ark of shittim wood, verse 10, 
Two and a half cubits shall be the length. I'll get in later to how these measurements are pretty phenomenal on what they cover. And thou shalt overlay this ark with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. So we see where the ark, the box. Now, when he speaks of the ark, he is speaking of this box. The, the, it does not have a lid. So it's like a box. But it is actually made of three parts. First, they built an ark of acacia wood, shittim wood. And it is a wood that does not deteriorate. And uh, it was a root out of dry ground. And I can just go on and on how wood represents uh, Jesus and how the tree and all this. But then after they built this, uh, this box, uh, according to the instruction of wood, they then built a larger outer box of pure gold, and they set the wooden box in it. Then they took this next box that is smaller than the wooden box, and they place it inside the wooden box, so you have the ark is actually constructed of three layers, gold, wood, and then gold. Gold on the inside, gold on the outside, wood sandwiched in between the two. And then we see where what covers the ark, of course, is what we call the mercy seat. But one of the things I want to call your attention to is that this mercy seat, uh, what holds it on, the ark, is actually the crown. There's a crown around the outer portion of the mercy seat and then of course on both ends of the mercy seat are the cherubims and it is between these two cherubims on the mercy seat that uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob will commune, will meet with us. Now uh, I think a lot of times uh, that in Christianity you cannot, uh, you cannot live according to what revelation you do not have. You can only walk in the revelation you do have. So. Uh, a lot of people have never come to the revelation that Jesus was God come in the flesh. Uh, I, I enjoyed listening to uh, 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 O'Reilly the other night, and in both the books he wrote, he wrote Killing Lincoln and the Assassination of Kennedy. I am glad to be in the group with Kennedy and with Lincoln because both of them believed that Jesus was God come in the flesh. This is exactly what I believe as well. Now. Uh, wherever you are in your knowledge and your revelation of that, if you believe Jesus is anything, whether you have fallen into the Roman teaching of three co-equal, co-existent people, whatever you see God as, if you don't have Jesus as deity, then you are of the spirit of the Antichrist. You need to know that right now. If you do not have Jesus as deity, you are already in serious trouble according to the word of God. But what I'm wanting us to catch is that these are object lessons. These are given to us in the schoolmaster so that we will not be deceived and so that we will rightly divide and understand when we get to the New Testament. So what we see is that the ark itself, where God's going to speak from, where his presence is going to dwell, uh, we see where it is made out of two completely different and distinct, very different distinct materials. It's made out of gold and it is made out of wood. You cannot make the wood gold and you cannot, or you cannot make gold into wood. And I'm telling you this because this is where many people have a problem understanding when someone as myself and many others like me, even the Pope, will tell you Jesus was God come in the flesh. Because what we understand that maybe some that are listening to this broadcast won't understand is we have no trouble in comprehending the mystery of God because of uh, we have wood, which represents the man Christ Jesus, and we have gold, which represents God, his deity. He was deity in flesh. 
the fullness of the Godhead bodily lived in Christ, that was the gold, and manifested itself on the outward of Christ, but yet uh, we see that uh, Christ himself was a man. And without having time to get into it in this teaching, uh, the mystery, the original mystery of the Trinity, the best that I have been able to study the historicity of it, is the fact that they did not understand how God made a man and the man would later become God for us and then to filter through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the original understanding of the Trinity was never three co-equal, co-existent people because that will not fit the scripture at all. You cannot make a case of that scripturally. No one can. And that's why people avoid that, because that contradicts scriptural teaching, regardless of how many have been taught it. So what we see is in 1 Timothy, staying on this subject, that once we understand what the ark is, and tonight I think it'll bring in a lot clearer light as to the object lesson. First off, when we go to the New Testament and we see that Jesus was a man, but yet he was the image of God. In the Old Testament, he spoke to us in many ways, but in the New Testament, only one way, through his Son. 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy... New Testament scripture, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of God. God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He preached unto the Gentiles. He believed on in the world and he was received up into glory. So, according to the word of God, God was manifest in flesh. Matthew 1, verse 21 through 23, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted is God with us. So, I'm trying to point out that when I look at Jesus, I see the Father. I, when, when I pray, now some of you will immediately turn off this website because you won't stick around long enough to get out of your teaching and just examine this. But when, when I speak to the Father, I do it biblically. Whatsoever I ask in the name of Jesus. That's the only name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. That's the only name given I'm to pray through or to. There is no other name given. He manifests his Father's name. He brought to us his Father's name. The apostles baptized in the only name given, which was Yahashua, Jesus. Okay? And so, uh, but yet, I'm wanting you to understand that I've heard people make this statement about, oh, does that mean you're a Jesus only? I have no idea what that means. Because without the Father, you can't have a son. All right, so does everybody understand? So if you ask me, as the senior pastor of this church, well, what is your church's stance on Trinity? I would say, we are original Trinitarians. Are you with me out there? Because that's really what I am. I, I'm not a Trinitarian after Tertullian got a hold of it, and after they that didn't know what they really believed made a uh, doctrine out of it. So, God with us. And so, when I see Jesus, I fall into the wonderful plan of God. That When I see him, I am seeing God come in the flesh. And as I see that, I am not discounting God is still everywhere. I'm just falling into the exact plan of God that this is the one I worship. This represents his presence. This represents his power. This represents his glory. That it, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess to the glory of the Father. This is him. Okay. So... Uh, he would be God with us. I'm still speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you're going to really see some things here in a moment. In Isaiah 9 and 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. We all think Jesus is wonderful. His name shall be Counselor. We all believe Jesus is Counselor. He's called the Mighty God. 
I believe Jesus is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Now, if you have been raised in certain denomination religions, you would have a hard time quoting this scripture as I've just done it. But yet, this is what the Bible teaches. This is not what man teaches. Let's go on. So, whenever I recognize the fact, in John 19, uh, I'm looking now that the ark is made of wood and gold. What we have to understand as I put forth this uh, theory of Jesus being God come in flesh is I understand what I see there. It's too vast to just give you a one-liner, so I'm giving you the simplistic term. But, but whenever they pointed to the one they were going to crucify, they said, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Here came Jesus. Now, Jesus Christ was a man. He was born from the seed of a woman. He's the wood. And that's why he said he of him own self could do nothing. He was just as powerless as you and I are. He was tempted in all things as you and I are. And that's why he said it's the Father in me that does the works. And so the man... See, if, if Jesus was co-equal with God the Father and Jesus could die on Calvary, which is a Christian, you have to believe he died in order for him to have been resurrected, then you just stated you believe God can die. And God can't die. And this is why Jesus, when he hung on the cross, cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because now the gold departs from the wood so that the wood can become sin for us. God, his whole plan of the veil of the man Christ Jesus that he tabernacled in was that he could be separated from sin that he could dwell amongst us. And so what happens is, is that now then he has to depart from that body for several reasons, but number one, because now, according to the scripture, the man Jesus was going to become the antidote by drinking the sin of the world. He was sinless by the power of the Father that dwelt in him. And now the man was going to die. So let me go on. So, then it, so they call him the man. You'll see this in scripture. In Acts chapter 2, you see he had a soul and that it went to hell. But he wouldn't leave him in hell. And so here we see in John chapter 20, but yet here's doubting Thomas. And Jesus comes walking through the door to Thomas and says, I don't believe he's resurrected till I see him. And Jesus walks in in John 20, verse 27 through 29. And he says, come here, Thomas, and put your, hand into my put your finger in my hands, into the nail prints, and, and thrust it into my side where the uh, spear was. And don't be faithless, but believing. And here is a devout Jew, Thomas, who knew the first commandment, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He said the Shema every day he got up. Uh, and Thomas answered and says, You are my Lord and my God. Now that's a huge statement. And here is what's incredible about that statement. Because the next verse, in verse 29, Jesus does not keep him nor does he correct him when he makes that statement. But rather he blesses that statement. And he says, Thomas, because you've seen, you've believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Acts 2.36 Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both God and Messiah. Look it up in your uh, original. Uh, the word Lord, no one can tell you if it means master or God. <laughs> John 14.7, whenever uh, Philip says to him, he says, Show us the Father, it will suffice. And Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him, and you have seen him. 
And Philip said, well, show me the Father. And Jesus says, have I been such a long time with you, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He that's seen me has seen the Father. And how sayeth thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that the wood is in the Father, and the gold of the Father is in me, and the words that I speak, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Now, I recognize that that can be somewhat confusing, but your job is to go on to know the Lord. And as you get to know him, uh, to align him with the scripture and see what he reveals to you. Now, let's get back to the ark. So what we see is, and once again, I am sharing with you how the, the entire tabernacle, and specifically each of the furnishings, each of the functions, the duties, the five sacrifices, each of the five implements that used at the altar, and the snuff dishes that are used in the menorah, everything speaks of Christ because he's the olive and the tav. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything. He's the creator. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. So what we're looking at now is we're looking at an artist's rendition of the glory, the Shekinah of God, uh, and here the veil is cut away, and we're looking into the Holy of Holies where here God's presence would come down and speak to Moses and later uh, to the children of Israel. And, of course, there in front of the uh, curtain or the veil that would be rent when Jesus is crucified, where all men could now make a way in, is the altar of incense. Uh, the glory of the Lord. Now, the other thing that we saw when I expressed what the Ark of the Covenant represented of the earth, one of them was, was the place for the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah. In Exodus chapter 40, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, so these typologies and these pictures that God is giving us in the Old Testament, maybe it's just a coincidence. But we're about to see some pretty incredible coincidences as I walk through a little historicity on what and where the ark is placed. Uh, so this glory comes down, rests on the ark of the covenant, which I am saying when I say ark, say Jesus Christ in your mind. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the glory of God came down and dwelt on the tabernacle, and yet, we know that the copper oath or the mercy seat obviously was Christ. But the glory of God, his, the ark was designed, the mercy seat was designed for the glory of God. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, the same word, we see this same glory now in the face of Jesus Christ. This is not coincidence. This is Bible teaching. Let's go on. Hebrews 1 and 3, "...who being the brightness of His glory..." and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So we are recognizing now that just as the glory of God rested on the mercy seat, this is because God wanted to dwell amongst them, that now we see where in the New Testament the glory of God is resting on the man, the wood, Christ Jesus, who is called the copper oath, or the mercy seat. John 1 and 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Actually, it's called and tabernacle amongst us. And we held his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, uh, and I'm not going to get into that now. All right. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So, 
we think of glory, I don't know how, when I say the word glory, what you think of, heaven or the kingdom to come or whatever, but when we look at this Shekinah, this presence of God, the glory of the Lord coming down, it is tied in the New Testament always to the mercy seat, to the man, Christ Jesus. Is that plain to everybody? Okay. Colossians 2 and 9. For in him, in the man, in the human, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, once again, I could describe the ark or I could describe Christ. New Testament, Old Testament. Old Testament was simply a typology. Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in the Son, in Christ, in Him should all fullness dwell. So this is why when Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, He takes Peter, James, and John, and He allows them to see the glory of God begin to manifest through His, his skin. He begins, they, begins to be allowed to see the Shekinah that was tabernacled behind the veil, which is what Christ's flesh was called, the veil. He was the tabernacle of God. So why does the tabernacle begin the first, the building of the ark? Well, just like the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 1, God allows it to begin with him. We didn't choose God. God chose us. And when you doubt whether God loves you or not, and I'd probably be rare if any of this room have never doubted that or anyone listening to this, we need to understand the whole purpose for him creating. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, why did he make it? Well, when you look at he made it, but it wasn't finished until he created man, he made all this for you and I, and he gave us dominion. And so what we see is, is that then because of the problems we had in flesh, rather than him get rid of us with a comet or whatever and start another planet, he sent us a tabernacle plan. He sent us a mercy seat. He sent to us, and so what he's doing is, is he's showing us through this tabernacle and through the man Christ Jesus and through the opening stories of Genesis that God's reaching to you. It, it, you think you've reached to him, but the truth is he's been reaching to you all along. He says, Adam, why are you afraid? Where are you, Adam? And so anytime the enemy comes to condemn us, remember, God never condemns. He convicts. Conviction's an awesome thing. It'll cause you to get closer to God through repentance, but he doesn't condemn. All right. And so we see here uh, in Exodus 25 and 2, he says, And there I will meet with you, I will commune with you from above the mercy seat. And this is exactly what he did with us through Christ. He spoke to us from the mercy seat. So this invisible God that spoke to Israel from the visible mercy seat in Exodus 30 and 6, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. And so whenever God, Jesus Christ was walking the earth, and this is why he asked Peter, says, Who do you say that I am? Uh, this is, as you study, there were people that recognized Jesus. And if you're a student of the Old Testament, then you will recognize that even whenever he called the apostles, one of the first ones he called, he says, I saw you when you're sitting under the fig tree. And the, and the future apostle looks at him and says, Thou art the king of Israel. Well, that's another terminology for God. He's Israel's king, Jacob's king, and Israel or Jacob's redeemer. It's an Old Testament. So once you grasp this concept, you will begin to read the New Testament in a different light. Uh, it's interesting that Moses himself referred to the ark as the Lord. That's a pretty big statement. In, I'm in the Old Testament now. 
in Numbers 10, 35, and 36. And it came to pass when the ark set forth that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. And so Moses understood this wood-gold plan. No man has seen God at any time. Even Moses couldn't see his, anything but his hinder parts. But God, in what we call theophanies, in the Old Testament, uh, the theophany of God was now in the mercy seat. And in the New Testament, there was never another theophany once the only begotten of God was brought forth from the seed of a woman, which was Christ Jesus, because he was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the dwelling place uh, here in the earth of God's presence and of God's power. In Exodus 25, God spoke from the mercy seat. I think I just read that. In Mark, oh, and there I will meet with you and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony and all things which I give thee in commandment to the Lord of Israel. Now, a cloud came down. And I'm going to walk you through some very, uh, uh, walk you through a few uh, pretty amazing uh, coincidences. So we've got this glory cloud that comes down when God speaks to Moses from the mercy seat. In Mark chapter 9 and 7, And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. So what I want us to do now is we are going to walk through typologies, and if you don't know what that is, then uh, refer to lesson 1. Uh, we're going to now look at some typologies of the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant and what it was used for versus the Son of God being the mercy seat and a typology of the Ark of the Covenant. The cloud of God, uh, the cloud of God overshadows. In Exodus 40, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses wasn't able to enter into the tent of the congregation because of the cloud. And then in Mark chapter 9, I've mentioned this already about the Mount of Transfiguration, verse 2 through 8. Uh, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. He led them into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. So we see that what God did in the Old Testament with the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus is going to be... Because remember, remember this, everybody. In Jesus' day, they did not have the Ark of the Covenant. The only Ark that God had designed for them to have in the days of Jesus, the Ark was gone was the man Christ Jesus. Let's look at another example. So, uh, whenever they reject King David, those of you that have been to Jerusalem with us, uh, the Kidron Valley, or at that time the Creek Kidron, uh, is uh, right across from the eastern gate of the temple, and that is where the uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane is, uh, and this is where Jesus would resort, uh, get away to to pray and this is where they would come get Jesus after the first Passover uh, to get him to be crucified and so let's go now to an Old Testament typology so now they've rejected King David I'm in 2nd Samuel chapter 15 and all the country, country wept with a loud voice and all the people passed over the king also himself passed over the brook Kidron and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness and lo Zadok also and all the Levites were with him bearing the ark of the covenant and they set down the ark of God and they went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. In John 18, we're going to see where the New Testament rejected king, who is the Ark of the Covenant, also with his disciples is brought over 
after he's been rejected, he's going to be crucified, John 18 and 1, and he is brought across the Kidron Valley over the brook Kidron. Uh, then we're going to see when the ark's taken in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tents. So when the Gentiles took the ark of God, then all of those that were following the ark fled. In Matthew 26, verse 31 and 56, Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of this night, for it's written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But this was all done that the scriptures of the prophet might be fulfilled, and then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So are these coincidences, or are they scriptural pictures that we can begin to study to realize what I'm teaching here tonight? The ark represents, the gold, the wood, the gold, represents Christ Jesus in this uh, typology of the tabernacle. Now, in Numbers chapter 10, and I'm, there are so many stories you could tell about the ark and compare it to the life and the uh, written examples of what Christ did. But let's look at this one. In Numbers chapter 10, And they departed from the mountain of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. This is exactly what our Ark of the Covenant, Jesus Christ, did. He went before us, three days' journey. He went into the pit of hell. Death couldn't hold him. Hell couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. And what did he do? He found us a resting place. And he returned unto the many thousands of Israel. So I'm just trying to keep it in order. You can walk the journey uh, of the ark and then walk the life of Christ. The Gentiles wanted to know what to do with the ark. 1 Samuel 5 and 8, And they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, What are we supposed to do with the ark of God? In Matthew 27, verse 22, Pilate says, What shall we do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? He's the ark of God. Gentiles had no idea what to do with him. Now the ark leads the way into the promised land. Whenever we look at Joshua then, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, speaking of the ark of the Old Testament, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. After it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. And so what we see now is this is exactly what our ark, this is exactly what Jesus did for you and I, is he is now 2,000 years ahead of us, and he has entered into the place where the children of promise are going to go, which is the promised land, and this is a picture once again of what we are learning about as we study the ark. So as we look back now at the, uh, uh, the tabernacle plan that is given to us, I'm hoping that we're almost to the end of lesson two, that we can begin to see the relevance and the importance as to why we can glean so much spiritual insight. These patterns of the Old Testament, and, and I've said it before, any doctrine of the New Testament that you cannot lay on the pattern of the book of Leviticus, of the priesthood, of the feasts, of the law, anything you cannot lay on these patterns probably is incorrect because these are the fundamental five foundations that God has given to us. And it's just like... Uh, you know, as my wife and I moved through a certain denomination that had a lot of legalistic rules, uh, the last thing we wanted to do was offend God. If, if the Bible said man's supposed to paint his nose blue and a woman's supposed to paint her ears red, my nose would be blue, her ears would be red. 
But if it did not say that, I would look ridiculous up here with a blue nose and her with red ears. And people that get stuck in religious rules that are not Bible actually get so twisted that they don't realize they look ridiculous because what they're doing has nothing to do with what God has said. And so, when we look at man-made legislated holiness, and we look at man-made rules, and I, I think it's awesome for people to uh, be committed to God and have personal consecrations. So as we begin to just want the truth of God, and I begin to learn about the 613 laws of God, it's finished. If it's not in one of those laws, certainly don't need to add it now. Because if God didn't see it as fact, then I certainly don't need to see it as fact, nor does your denomination or your pastor. Now, if you want to make that a church conviction and tradition, that's a whole different deal. But don't make it a biblical fact. Okay, so we see where, uh, with, uh, I'll be done here in five minutes. We see here on this tabernacle that the Lord manifests His presence with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we also understand that uh, they, this is what caused them to wander in the wilderness, that they followed this cloud by day and this cloud by night. That uh, uh, when it moved, they moved. And there's so many things we can ascertain by that, but God uh, doesn't leave us. He's always calling us forward. He's calling us deeper into the promised land. And, and if I were to uh, walk through the whole story of it right now, what I would share with you is the fact that so he brings them out of Egypt. But when he gets them out of Egypt, the job is not completed because they have not completed their job by eating what's this, just the manna every day. They have not completed until they follow this pillar until it walks them all the way to the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into communion with God. And so this is what this represents, is that we as believers, as we <clears throat> begin to follow the Lord, our job is not completed just because we have made the initial steps and we have walked through the blood, the water, and the Spirit. We now are the tabernacle of God and we are the temple of God and we are daily trying to follow the will of God. This is what the cloud represents. And uh, we see where it would rest above the tabernacle, above the mercy seat. And of course, as it moved, they moved. I mentioned this already. Whenever it stopped, they stopped until it moved again. Uh, and then when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, we see where once again that this mercy seat that sat upon it uh, was held on by a crown of gold. You will see where in the book of Hebrews that he was crowned with glory. Uh, Jesus himself was. And anytime you see a crown, you're going to see a crown on the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to see a crown on the uh, altar of incense. And you're going to see a crown on the uh, altar of shewbread, on the table of shewbread. And also remember that when we look at the Ark of the Covenant that we're going to see that God says where you shall place the testimony. There actually were two testimonies and we see where the first testimony was broken when Moses came to the foot of the mountain. This is not the testimony that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. What was placed in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments that had not been broken then he had them place them there along with the pot of manna or an omer of the manna that fed, daily fed them. And then he also had them place there Aaron's rod that budded. And uh, the rod that budded was an almond rod. And of course the reason that it budded was that God was showing whom he had chosen 
to operate in priesthood, and of course it represented the root out of dry ground, a dead walking stick that would be brought to life and bear forth fruit, being a picture of Messiah. And so we see that these three items are placed in the ark, and we are going to see later in lessons where these three items are exactly a representation of Jesus Christ. He is the one that was dead that bears fruit. He is the manna come down from heaven, and he is the walking fulfillment of the law. We also see that uh, this ark is a portable stature, and it is to be borne upon the shoulders of the priests. You and I are a royal priesthood, and what we are packing into the earth is not ourselves, but we are packing with us uh, God's mercy. We're packing with us the presence of God. Uh, and we also see that the mercy seat, uh, I've used this in wedding ceremonies, the, is one piece of beaten gold with the angels, the cherubim's wings touching above, and of course the seat of the mercy, the bottom of the mercy seat, it makes a circle of gold. And I use the analogy that the reason it's a circle is because when you look at a circle, no man can tell where the mercy of God begins, nor can any man tell where the mercy of God ends. And it was God's mercy, the mercy seat, that kept these three items that I aforementioned covered. Because I see, in my analogy of these three items, when I look at them, I see another view of them, and that is the fact that God put in this box the laws that were broken by men, the bread that they murmured about, and Korah's rebellion whenever he complained about, well, how do we know that you should be the leaders and not us? And so when we look at these three things that were placed in the ark, not only were they things that God himself would be in flesh, but they also were covered by the mercy of God because God has covered these things about man, our rebellion, our complaining, and our breaking of his, of his law. And as long as the mercy seat is left on top of the ark, God sees us not through the laws of God, but he sees us through the mercies of God. Now let me see if there's anything else I need to mention. Uh, you're going to find those uh, list in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 of the items that were in the ark. Uh, then uh, there's a picture of them. Then what we're going to cover in the next lesson is we are going to cover... Uh, the dimensions of the ark. We're going to cover the cherubims. Remember that whenever Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, that the first place we see cherubims with a flaming sword, they are placed for protection outside of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from entering back in. So I hope something said here has opened your eye to understand the importance of the tabernacle teaching and as a blueprint for us understanding correct biblical teaching. God bless.